During the first week of the trial of Randall Weaver following the mess at Ruby Ridge, another American event took place to steal the headlines, one that also involved the ATF and FBI. Nearly 2,000 miles away, a group of around 80 religious disciples who followed a man known as David Koresh were having a standoff with the same agencies responsible for the deaths of multiple innocent people less than a year before. The scenarios echoed one another in multiple ways. Government agencies' fear of guns, lack of communication, and lack of understanding. But they were also different in many ways. One was a family, one was a religious community. One always had weapons on them, one simply used them for commerce. But to figure out what happened at Waco in 1993, we have to understand the whole story. This is that story. I do think I've officially hit the point in my life where I just can't stand a majority of like new music. Yep. And so hearing like Young Gravy, like using like, I'm never going to give you up and like doing whatever the hell he sings on it. I can understand why he's getting sued. It's just like, it's just, I feel it's just like have more creativity. Yeah. I read the article because I was like, well, this is like a blatant ripoff. But then I read the article and yeah. it was like his team talked to Rick Astley's team and got permission to use the the likeness of the song. And then his lawyers are like, this is not this is way too close to the original. <laughs> so you guys are going to get sued. I mean, the likeness, they really. Yeah, they really over uh, overuse the likeness. Yes, I would agree with that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gems of History podcast. Episode 100. Episode 100. Okay, cheers, cheers to that, baby. Big J. Never call you that in 25 years I'll of take friendship, it. but yes, this is super exciting. I cannot believe we made it this far, honestly. A hundred episodes. That yeah. is unreal. And it all started, I remember just waking up to a text from you because like, you wake up super early for work. <laughs> yeah, like 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. And you're like, well, I've been thinking about starting a podcast. And it's like, yeah, this sounds exactly what, uh, yeah. like what we would want to do. Um. It's crazy looking back at it, it's two years. Yep. Like how much our our lives have, like how much life happens in just two years. Yeah, it's crazy, man. And this entire time we've been doing this. I mean, I did mention like this is more like 104 or something, if you count the unscripted ones that we've done to throw in the middle, but this is the 100th legitimate episode. But for our purposes, we're not counting them. So happy 100th. We make the rules. <laughs> you think there was a listener just being like, they're already at episode 100. How come they're not doing anything? Yeah. It's just like, we are. Don't worry. It's coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so we are very excited. We are covering a big topic. We decided instead of doing something like, I have heard people say like, oh, do a Q&A mm-hmm. or something like that. And I was like, I want to do something that we've been planning on doing for a while and cover Waco. So. We've been talking about Waco for a while. I think, honestly, since literally the start of last year, yeah. I think we started... Well, mapping on what we want to do and Waco has always been at the top of it, but we want to do it right. Yeah, it's a right? very, it, the more I got into doing the research and writing the notes, I realized how complicated this story actually is. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's very much like Ruby Ridge and how there's so many different sides to the story and it's hard to f- 
pick the right ones because all of them are wrong in some way or another. Totally agree. When you think of Waco, I think the general public will probably just think, oh, religious group got a little too out of hand. And then the FBI, or excuse me, the ATF FBI came in and people died. Like they don't really know. There's just so many layers of what actually happened. And I'm really excited to go into this. So for those of you that don't know the, the story of what happened at Waco, basically there's a religious group known as the Branch Davidians who were occupying a place known as Mount Carmel in Waco, just outside of Waco, Texas. And over 51 days, they had a standoff with the ATF and FBI, which ended in around 80 people losing their lives, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly on the Branch Davidian side, but there's a few on the ATF FBI side as well. And afterwards, it sparked huge controversy because everyone was saying it was a cult. Everyone was saying they deserved it. Mm -hmm. And then there was huge Senate hearings that kind of realized maybe that's not the whole truth. So it's a very interesting story. And it's kind of the first time we've tackled a topic like a religious group like this. Yeah, honestly, I think it is the first time we really don't like we talk about religion quite a bit, like specifically Christianity and like some Mostly like their medieval shenanigans yeah. when like the popes were like up to things. And the, the witch trials and stuff like that. When the Pope was like making people's like sex beds and et yeah, cetera, yeah, yeah. et cetera, you know. The usual. The usual, yeah. Um but I think this is the first time we're covering something in like more relatively modern history. And yep. I think there's a lot of parallels to draw between this and like you mentioned, Ruby Ridge. Because again, with that story, people think, oh, they were white supremacists. With guns, like the government had every right to like yeah. essentially kill several people. Where as you dive into the story, that's I mean it's not true. It it's like the half truth. Right. Like, like they were they were white nationalists is what they call themselves. So it's like mm-hmm. they're not KKK members. They just went to the gatherings because they thought, hey, maybe we can make new friends in an area where we're at, which isn't good. Shouldn't go to KKK rallies, but like it's a, they went to one meeting, you they know, took their kids, you <laughs> they know, took- it, they were like field trip. Let's back up. When I say it's still bad just to go to even one meeting, yes. but <laughs> <laughs> caveat, caveat. Yeah. But they didn't deserve to get shot for it. You know? No, no, they didn't. So not. yeah, this is a, it's a very complicated story and we're going to do our best to sift through it the best we can and give you guys our interpretation of the Waco story. So yes. So excited to dive in. Shall we? Mm-hmm. Cannonball. Maybe mm. that was silly. All right. <laughs> after a hundred episodes, we, maybe I'll get, we'll funny. get there someday. <laughs> maybe by 200. <laughs> so as I mentioned at the beginning, to understand the story of Waco, we have to understand the tale from the beginning, and in order to do that, we have to lay a bit of groundwork for how David Koresh came to be at Mount Carmel in Waco, and who the Branch Davidians are. I mean, it's a very important part of the story to understand where these people were coming from belief-wise, and how they got organized in this place in the, in the beginning, and how it transpired to where it got to. Because Koresh was nowhere near the first person to lead the group, and he wouldn't be the last person to lead the group. The Davidians are still around today in some capacity. People still claim to be Branch Davidians, but they're not nearly as organized as they were in this time period. It's just kind of an offshoot religious group now. Right. Once something like Waco happens and that sect, if you will, of Christianity or 
by extension, seventh, seventh day Adventists. That's going to be tough to say throughout the next few. We're calling few them episodes. the SDA after a little while. Don't Thank worry. <laughs> goodness, the SDA. Once you have that connotation, it's very hard. But I mean, the SDA as a whole is still doing relatively well. They've like, got like twenty million worldwide members. So, oh right, like insane numbers. Yeah, but. Again, it's hard to get people committed to the Branch Davidians because, again, Waco. Yeah. That's the only thing that people will think of. But, I mean, Scientology still has millions of members worldwide. And, like, everyone kind of knows you guys aren't very noble of a group either. I know so. we don't want to talk because we do have a lot to cover today. But, like, Scientology, how? how? Yeah. We but can... that can also be said about, like, Christianity and the Crusades. Like, also how? Yeah. <laughs> people so. still get into it, but. So as I mentioned, the Davidians and Branch Davidians are splinter groups from a larger religion known as the Seventh-day Adventists. So the Seventh-day Adventists, or SDA as we will call them going forward, was a group formed in the mid-1800s under a man named William Miller. And this is in the time period where they're part of a group and a movement known as the Millerite Movement based under him. So it's, it's in the time period where there's a lot of people kind of experimenting. This is when Mormonism kind of got started. So a lot of religious offshoots are popping up here and there because it's the first time the country has really had the chance to experiment because before it was all Puritans and everyone was super strict. And now they finally have a little more lax rules so that everyone can do their thing. Right, it's almost like a second reformation in yeah. the United States. Um, I remember in some college courses, that's what they referred to it as, just because this is, like you mentioned, a time where there's so many different sects of Christianity popping up, which were already offshoots of like Catholicism, which was already an offshoot of, yeah. like, and you keep on going on and going on, but it's just very interesting. It is. So William Miller took a passage from the Bible in the book of Daniel that said it was going to take 2,300 days for the temple to be cleansed and for Jesus Christ to return. So he interpreted that time frame and said a prophecy for the year 1844 stating that Jesus would return, but of course, that didn't happen. And the event, or lack thereof, is now known as the Great Disappointment. And then Miller passed away uneventfully in 1849. Other names included the Big Aw Shucks. <laughs> the Big Fuck Up. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Big G-Dang. <laughs> <laughs> so the group changed hands to a woman named Ellen White, primarily, and was incorporated as the Seventh-day Adventists in 1863. So they reinterpreted William Miller's words and stated that he actually was correct, but that Jesus actually entered the Holy Tabernacle in heaven before coming to earth. Which I'm just picturing myself, because of course we, we've talked about before, we grew up in private schools, like Christian private schools, like going to church on Sundays, whatever, just sitting in a pew and imagining the man in the pulpit being like, well, technically... I was right. He just didn't go all the way down to Earth. He just went to like the like house before Earth. Yeah. The <laughs> the way that I saw it and kind of interpreted it was that there's like a temple in heaven mm -hmm. and Jesus wasn't allowed to go into like cuz back in the day there was like the holy the most holy area and the the holy area and everything. Yep, with the tabernacle. Yep. And so their idea was that he was in the holy area and now he moved into the most holy area. So that is what 
William Miller got quote unquote right. <laughs> it is very funny that this religion is set up like thank goodness that there was two tabernacle areas. <laughs> like, <laughs> they really gave us a walk around. The leaders were like probably just behind closed doors, just looking through notes like what can we say? What can we say? What can we say? What can we say? I did not have sexual <laughs> relations with that woman. <laughs> what is the word the <laughs> <laughs> technicalities? Yeah. <laughs> they get us through a lot or get people through a lot. Always world leaders are leaders of men, but yeah. yeah. So the group then expanded worldwide, and Ellen White began to preach that the church was becoming corrupt and sinful, and then when she died, the church kind of plunged into a dark period because their leader was saying, oh, everyone's unholy, sinful, and then she just goes up and dies, and then everyone's like, well, what do we do now that we're like she declared us all sinners how do we fix this yeah it's tough to come back when that's your leader's final word yeah and at this time too the actual religious leaders like the people preaching have a lot of pull because again that's just like the climate of religion at the time like i mentioned it's like a second reformation in the united states well and then the the leaders have so much authority to say what what goes like, you're literally mm-hmm. making new interpretations of a thing that's been around for thousands of years now. So it's a kind of a lot of pressure when your leader goes up and dies after she declares that we need to make changes. What are those changes going to be? And this is the period where a man named Victor Tasho Hotef took interest in the church in the early 1900s. So Hotef was a man born in Bulgaria, and he moved to America before he was a teenager. After World War I, he began his journey with the Adventist Church. But eventually, he realized through study of his own that there was different revelations to be had from certain sections of the Bible that were not as cut and dry. The class, I mean, again, that's what's sparked every single division of Christianity because the book, this isn't a shot at Christianity, but the book is very unclear on a lot of things. Yeah. It's very much up to interpretation. It is like... It's a a collection of poems, and poems are not necessarily the most clear in their meanings all the time. So. And prov- like, just read the book of Proverbs sometime, and like try to decipher it because, like you mentioned, it's poems, right? Yeah. It's like Proverbs, so like little tidbits of wisdom, but like that wisdom translates into a lot of different things. Exactly. So. Hotef wrote these ideas into a manuscript that he called The Shepherd's Rod, which ended up being two separate volumes. The Shepherd's Rod focused on returning the church to the original doctrines and then also extended into a prophecy that took the timeline that William Miller set up for the second coming of Jesus and kind of pushed it along forward and said, well, he's in heaven still, but he's going to come to earth and we're going to figure out when that is. He's going to be here. He's right around the corner. Just, I just got a text. He I just said got he's, a text. He's running late. <laughs> so according to Hotef, once Jesus entered that tabernacle section in heaven, the judgment process of every professed person of God, living and dead, began. So I know what you're thinking. Every professed follower of God from the beginning of time, it's going to take a while to go through all of them. And that's exactly what Victor was banking on. Victor banked on the fact that paperwork takes a long time to file sometimes. Yeah, the <laughs> logistics side. Yeah. Even Victor is being like, ah, oh, supply chain. It is just the most <laughs> human explanation for 
this section of the Bible that they're trying to interpret. It's like, no, there's just a lot of paperwork. And also, what are, what are his followers going to say? Like, are they just going to be like, Jesus, be faster, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, the main guy, like, just happens to not... He turned water into wine. He does not have the correct accounting information for everyone's <laughs> everyone's returns on Christianity or professed Christianity. I just love that they think that this almighty God that they worship is like, I can't do this all at once. I have to go through this individually. I can't just use my almighty power to do this paperwork at a sing- in a snap of my fingers. I literally transcend time, but <laughs> just give me a couple of years. Bro. They pitched that the omnipotent, um, the other ones, I forget. Omniscient. Omniscient, thank you. The all-powerful God is basically the DMV. (laughs) (laughs) Take a number. Are you kidding? So, Victor believed that the judgment process was slowly catching up to the current day, and current day meaning the early 1900s, and that the 144,000 selected Christians that are mentioned in the Bible were being sifted out for when Jesus would return to earth. Which is very interesting with the 144, because that is very prevalent in Mormonism, if I'm not mistaken. It's uh, very prominent in Calvinism. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we talked about that with uh, Elizabeth Bathory. But yeah, it's a lot of different sects of that are offshoots of Christianity focus on that, and that's like where the predestination comes in. It's like, I don't want to be a part of that a religion like that, though. Because it's like, if I'm not one of those, then what happens to me? Like, 144,000 people is not a lot. No, it's not. So, Hotef sent these writings in the shepherd's rod to the SDA church elders, and instead of deciding to humble themselves and perhaps admit that they were incorrect on a few things, they disfellowshipped Hotef from the church. So, in the early 1930s, Victor had organized his own movement and settled near Waco, Texas, at what he called Mount Carmel Center. I mean, it's literally the biggest parallel in all of Christianity, because when Martin Luther was like, hey, I have some like notes here on what Catholicism is saying, they were like, well, now you're not part of the church. Yeah. Like, Luther also did that to people that disagreed with him. Didn't you see what happened to King Henry? Like, right, yeah. Figure it out. <laughs> so it's like whenever a religious group gets power and they're like, someone else is like, I have some notes. They're like, well, actually, you're on fellowship. <laughs> you can take your notes and do your own thing. Right. You can start your own DMV. So once he started Mount Carmel Center, his ministry flourished, and he began to expand out into different parts of the world, and the community in Texas established a rest home, an education center, a grade school, and an employment agency, which would have been a smart choice since it was during the middle of the Great Depression, and they even set up their own bank, which is wild to me. <laughs> that it, is pretty incredible. Yeah, like, I mean, you had to go through the Fed and everything. Yeah. It was as early as this time period when followers accepted that they would have to give up popularity, reputation, and possibly physical safety for the message that they believed in. And these are very now well-accepted cult uh, tropes. Uh, You have to like, oh, the people are going to hate you. You're you're giving the people a martyr complex immediately. Mm -hmm. So, but that's the, the difficult thing with the Davidians and the Branch Davidians. It's they never really got fully to a cult. They're cult adjacent, is what someone that I was talking to said. And I think that's a good way of putting it. 
Around this time is also the time when the group adopted their new name, which was the Davidian Seventh Day Adventist. Why is that so hard to say? I I I can't even say it right now. The Davidian <laughs> Seventh Day Adventists. The DSDAs, <laughs> signifying that the group planned to restore the Davidic kingdom spoken of in the Bible. Victor Hotef proclaimed that he would be the one to lead the people to heaven and that he would not die before completing that mission. But as fate would have it, Hotef died later that year and the Davidians fell into a state of instability. It's just always funny, like a lot of things again, like the tropes or like attributes of a cult is I'm the only person that can lead like Joseph Smith. Yeah. Was also the only person that could read these golden tablets that he found. You know, that's just the most cult. That is probably like step number one to starting a cult. Oh, You're yeah. You're the only person that can read this. That's how the cult leaders operate. It's like they're the one with the, all mm-hmm. the answers and everyone else needs to go through them for everything. Mm-hmm. So the leadership of the church began to split, leading to more splinter groups from the splinter group that they were already a part of. But before he died, Victor left the group under the control of his second wife, Florence, who was to lead the Davidians until another prophet made themselves known. Florence sold the property that they had and resettled to a 941-acre farm nine miles away from Waco, which they dubbed New Mount Carmel. That is truly the most insane, like, with all the research that I did, 941 acres. I don't, how do you afford that? How do people afford these things? Like they had to target the wealthiest people to join this yeah. religion. Not gonna call it a cult, but like that's insane. So once they settled and got organized on this new land, Florence gathered the other leaders and they all predicted another huge event. They stated that April twenty second, nineteen fifty nine was to be the date that God's new kingdom would be established. Around 900 people gathered at the new Mount Carmel, which is crazy that they're already almost at 1,000 people, and this has only been around for 20 years. That's pretty insane growth. Yeah. Like, so they were very charismatic in their preaching. Apparently, yeah. But when the date came and went, a lot of them lost that faith and left the group. After the second large disappointment, another quote-unquote prophet showed up. Benjamin Roden was a former SDA member as well, and he subscribed to Hotef's Shepherd's Rod movement after being disfellowshipped from the church himself. And once Florence's failed prophecy came to light, Ben and his wife Lois gained a small following from the Davidians. Benjamin made a claim that God revealed the new name of Christ to him, which was the Branch, and thus the Branch Davidians were born. Like, we've heard some takes on this show, and to be like, you know what, Jesus Christ actually is going by a new name now, and it's just Branch. The Branch. (laughs) The Branch. Oh, sorry, the Branch. That's very, I don't know, it's very interesting that it is a group, like the leaders are technically outcasts. Yeah. And it's almost like more dangerous from the church itself to make these people who are having these very, let's say outlandish thoughts to pitch them as outcasts because then they do like that whole, like you said, like martyr complex where like, I am the only one that can do this. Everyone follow me. 
that started cults. It binds cetera, the group together tighter because then they all think everyone else is against us, so the only ones for us are here. You can never make a group of people or even like a couple being like everyone else is against me because then they will stick together and be tighter than ever. Yep. So through some wizardry, the Rodans were able to claim the new Mount Carmel property, which had shrunk in size with the Branch Davidians, for themselves and their followers. After moving back to the 77-acre plot of land, shrunk quite a bit. That is... I'm still not over 941 acres, but anyway. Yeah. Rodan focused his teachings on the restoration of the state of Israel and, of course, Christ's return to Earth. Benjamin even traveled to Israel himself and established a small following there as well before dying in 1978. And when he was gone, his wife Lois took over, and she is probably better known than her husband is. Mm -hmm. Lois Roden moved the focus of the teachings to a more feminist slant, proclaiming that the Holy Spirit was actually female in nature and that men and women should be cohabitating within the church. She went on to publish a journal on women's place in religion known as Shekinah and also spoke to media outlets about her beliefs in efforts to spread the Branch Davidian teachings. This isn't an anti-woman take, so please don't take it as one, but to say that like a spirit has a gender is very funny. Yeah. That is very funny. Uh, But this is a big part of the whole movement is that they're now public with their beliefs they're talking to news outlets she's getting on newspapers like they're actively spreading the message in a Mm -hmm. public format now so she told these newspapers that she had a vision of a silver shimmering feminine figure that was the holy spirit of god the group had bible studies from 9 a.m to 3 p.m under the leadership of their female prophet for years teaching this message to everyone who came It was around this time in the early 80s where a young upstart full of religious fervor and a lot of energy showed up at Lois Roden's door. This man's name was Vernon Wayne Howell, who less than a decade later would be better known as David Koresh. Boom, boom, boom. The man of the hour. Vernon Wayne Howell, VWH, at your service. It is the most Texas name. (laughs) It's just very weird. I can't imagine, like, listening to that probably a thick southern drawl talk about talk about like how we're just extending yeah the due date for christ to be back yeah and like you i watched a video on waco and they show david koresh speaking at his bible studies and stuff and he honestly doesn't have like that strong of a southern like it's still there Mm -hmm. it's very clear that he's from the south but it's not as strong as i thought it was gonna be and i wish it was in real life you know how we've uh, assigned baddies of history? Yep. Do you think that this man uh, qualifies? No. I wouldn't oh, say so. Oh, God, no. How did he get any followers? This is the first time I'm seeing a picture. I, they always call him handsome, and he's like, he's fine looking. He's not terrible, but yeah, I've not, not a looker in my opinion. There's many words or instances to use the word fine, and this is not one. <laughs> So Vernon Wayne Howell was born on August 17, 1959, in Houston, Texas, to an unmarried 14-year-old high school dropout named Bonnie Clark. Vernon's father was a man named Bobby Wayne Howell, who dipped out of the picture pretty quick after his son was born, 
but not before giving Vernon the nickname Sputnik, because he was, in Bobby's words, so rackety and restless. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I don't know what how that relates to Sputnik. <laughs> that really doesn't. No, so it's, it's a very weird name, in my opinion, to give. Well, I also don't believe that this man probably realized what Sputnik truly was, no. I'm guessing. Bonnie, soon after, married another man who had apparently just gotten out of prison, and he was an abusive man who beat both Bonnie and Vernon pretty regularly. And at this point, Vernon's only one or two years old, so he's still an infant. In an attempt to find a better situation for her son, Bonnie gave Vernon to her mother, Erlene, at the age of two. Erlene brought the infant into the fold along with her own two children, and the three became almost like siblings with one another, which is ironic because she had two kids a little bit after Vernon came, which would make those two younger kids his uncle and aunt. Yep. <laughs> very <laughs> was, weird arrangement. I was waiting for you to get to it. Yeah that's, yeah, that's an odd thing. That's very games of Game of Thrones-ish. Yeah. I mean, his mom's 14, so she's still a kid, too. So yeah, I, she I, is a child. That yeah. is... God. And, like, this is... Oh, that's so weird. Babies like, having babies. We talk about this a lot, like, in our medieval episodes, but, gosh, this happens, like... Yeah. Not that far ago. According to the Clarks, Erlene's family, Vernon was a bright child who grew up calling his grandmother Mama and looked for ways to help around the house while he lived with them. And one of those times, when Vernon was around the age of four, he put the garden hose into the gas tank of the family car and filled it with water. <laughs> I mean, that's just one of those just pure kid things, because yep. in his mind, he's like, yeah, that makes sense. I'm helping. I'm helping, yeah. What else do you put in here? It's like when your dog sits right next to you when you're cooking. It's like, oh, they're helping. It's yeah. Like, nope, not really. <laughs> they're trying to get scraps. <laughs> yep. According to David, when he was older, he recounted hearing voices as a child and didn't feel like he really fit in anywhere. This was enforced more by the fact that all of the male figures in his life seemed to treat him as if he wasn't worth much. After his birth father left and the second man his mother dated physically beat him, he was left in a household in which Erlene's husband showed li- very little affection to the kids, especially Vernon. According to Erlene, her husband was a hard-drinking, quote, macho man, a country-type Texan, end quote, so she didn't expect him to show emotion towards the kids except for discipline. After a couple years of living with his grandparents, Vernon was taken back in by his mother when she entered into another marriage with a man named Roy Haldeman. The trio moved to Dallas, and David later in life claimed that Roy was also physical with him at home, stating, quote, When I used to act up, when I had a bad report card, can you imagine? We got our tails whomped, end quote. David also remembered th- that Roy would make him, quote, fly like a kite. And Haldeman denied the claims in an interview, stating that the family, quote, got along okay. Fly like a kite, meaning as in like, like throw him, beat him, and like throw him. And, oh Jesus! Yeah. So his home life is very turbulent, to say the least. That is very interesting, considering you hear a lot of serial serial killer stories, like their origin stories, kind of like this. Yeah, but instead, like this man, I mean, he turned to God, like in his later adult life, 
It is. But, it, which we'll cover later, but it's kind of like when you hear the background story, it's very interesting that he could have, he does eventually go down like not the greatest path, but yeah. with the caveat of he thought that he was doing something right. Right. And this, like you said, this is a very common thing amongst mm-hmm. like Charles Manson. He had a very similar childhood to this where he was born to like an unmarried teenage mother and stuff like right. that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of just a, it's where the whole thing with uh, nature and nurture, because yep. sometimes you're just dealt a bad hand. But there's plenty of people that are and never turn out like this, right. so yeah. you can't really use that <laughs> excuse all the time. Mm-hmm. According to reports from others in the Clark home, Vernon's time living with his mother and Roy had happy moments when his aunts and uncles would come visit, but the visits would be capped with a sadness when Vernon would beg to go home with his grandmother. Sharon, who's Bonnie's younger sister and thus Vernon's aunt, said that one of the memories that stuck with her of this time was when she looked out of the car window as the Clark family drove away and watched Vernon on his bicycle pedaling after the car while he cried. That makes me want to weep right now. That is so sad. It's a movie scene. Yeah. Oh, that is so sad. When he was old enough to attend school, it was found pretty quickly that Vernon had a bit of a learning disability. He had slight dyslexia, which led to constant struggles fitting in at school. When he reached the first grade, his learning issues became more pronounced, and he had to retake the first grade twice. When he finally did complete the first grade, he had to retake the second. As is to be expected, this led to children bullying him pretty hard. And here is where he got another nickname, but this one was decidedly more harmful than Sputnik. By the third grade, Vernon was sent to a special education school near the other school, and at recess, the kids from the regular public school would taunt him and his classmates, calling him specifically by the nickname of Mr. Retardo. And that's the name taken from the book. If it wasn't part of what made David who he was, I wouldn't say it because I don't mm-hmm. really like using that term. But it is pretty important to his upbringing. That is so... Like, kids suck. Yeah. Like, that is so tough. Like, his situation was very bad. Yeah. I, it was a rough childhood. I'm not... Yeah. I, I don't think anyone would argue against that. But like I said, it's just not an excuse for right. doing things that he did, you know? it's right. just, It is very sad, though. Mm-hmm. Back at home, Vernon faced issues as well. According to David, his only real fond memories were when his maternal grandfather would take him out fishing or hunting. But following that, he also recounted how his mother beat him black and blue at his 13th birthday party in front of everyone. Oh, man. I'm going to cry at some point. (laughs) Around the age of 14, Vernon was sent back to live with his grandparents again in Tyler, Texas. They lived in a great new neighborhood, and they had a spare room for him to sleep in, but Vernon decided that he wanted to live out of the shed in the backyard instead. He was able to clean it up and also realized that he was good working with his hands. He cleaned out the shed, hammered on it, and fixed it up and made it into his own little private space. His Aunt Sharon said that it wasn't for any reason of feeling unwanted in the house. It was just that Vernon liked the idea of fixing things up. Right, and it's like his own space too. Like that, that going through what he's already gone through, he needs like space to decompress. So it's awesome. It's the first time I think he can kind of express his individuality. Yeah, because he's been tossed back and forth between houses. He hasn't really been able to establish himself anywhere. You know, Mm -hmm. 
However, Vernon was never really able to get over his difficulty with writing and reading, and even in his adult years, he would mix words up like globally and globular, and he dropped out of high school in the 11th grade. His backyard sanctuary was a typical teenager's room with fluorescent posters and rock and roll designs, and a black light hooked up to an extension cord running to the house. And here is where Vernon first found out that he wanted to try out music. Mm, rock and roll, huh? Rock and roll, brother. In addition to music, Vernon was apparently spending his time with quite a few girls around this time as well, according to his Aunt Sharon. These girls would come from around the neighborhood under the guise of visiting his Aunt Sharon, but what they really wanted was to meet the handsome guy who lives in the cool shed in the backyard and played rock and roll music. Ooh, all right, with the shaggy hair and cool glasses. According to Sharon, this was a happy and stable time in Vernon's life, and he was finally in an area where people liked him and wanted to be around him. But this time was short-lived because Earlene's husband complained about Vernon being around, and he was sent back to live with Bonnie and Roy in Dallas. And this part kind of confused me, because he's just living in the shed in the back. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I feel like he's not really getting in the way or anything. And he's, no. He's doing his own thing, so... But I guess didn't want him around anymore. The so. true definition of minding his own business. Yeah. Unless something, like, we did, we're not privy to that information, unless, like, something happened. Stop bringing all these teenage girls around here. Ooh. I mean, maybe if they're religious and he, they got, yeah, that's he got caught doing the hippity-dippity. I don't know. Vernon's half-brother, Roger, had been sent to jail for drug charges and burglary, burglary around this time. And according to later accounts from David... His cousins tried to rape him. Oh, God. In order to protect himself, Vernon started hitting the weights and getting stronger. And he said the only things he could rely on were his guns and his dog, which was named Jet Fuel. Which is an awesome name for a that dog. Is, do we know what kind of dog it was? No, I didn't see anywhere what well, kind of dog. Well, it was just a pug. It's <laughs> just like a chihuahua. Go get him, Jet. Jet Fuel. <laughs> After he left school, he moved back in with his grandparents again, though. So he only had another short stint with his actual parents, well, his mom and her husband. But one thing he did have in common at both his grandparents and his parents' house was the fact that both of them were steeped in religion. Bonnie and Erlene were both practicing SDA members, which led them to ban smoking, drinking, and fornication. But as with school, Vernon didn't really follow formal instructions well, and he supposedly didn't like the rigid way that the Adventists worshipped, stating that they were, quote, a bunch of folks died, fried, and tied to the side. Whatever that means. That's so Texas. Yeah. It hurts. I know. That's so so Texas, it wants to secede from the (laughs) Union. (laughs) It's telling me to remember the Alamo. It it is telling me to never tread on me. If anyone from Texas knows what a bunch of folks died, fried, and tied to the side means, please let us know. (laughs) Please reach out. But Vernon did say that he was fascinated at the same time by the church services and learned huge sections of the Bible and would tell the other kids about what he was learning from the scriptures. After skipping class one day, Vernon went to the church and prayed on his own, asking God to talk to him directly. And talk to him, he did. Vernon said he began having direct conversations with God regularly, 
and these conversations intensified when he came into troubles with his life. He has that uh, special payphone with his hands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the one that goes right to the big guy. In this pivotal time in his life, Vernon also began to focus a lot more on his rock and roll. He found a girlfriend who said that she came second in his life to the music that he played. He would hang around with the younger boys and play his guitar while his girlfriend, whose name was Debbie, would watch. He tried playing in a few bands, but none of them went anywhere. But the boys who watched him said that they learned a lot from him and he taught them a lot about standing up for themselves and gave them a big boost to their own self-esteems. Right on. I mean, that's very important, especially at these, like the teenage years, so like 17, 18, where he's at right now. Yeah, it's pretty important. It's probably where he got the confidence to later become a cult leader. But at the time, I think this is like a very big point to the fact that the the males that he knew that were supposed to be role models for him just weren't role models for him. So I think he's like, maybe I should try being a role model for other younger kids. Mm -hmm. Vernon did actually reunite with his birth father briefly around this time, and overall. It seems that the religious stuff kind of took a back seat for a while, but his relationship with his girlfriend Debbie wouldn't last too long. Since he didn't really have a male role model, Aunt Sharon said that Vernon struggled with sexual education. David later said that in addition to the other boys attempting to accost him, an older girl tried to have sex with him when he was six years old. Whether this is true or not, who knows, but it shows that he had a strenuous time learning about relationships growing up. Yeah, and that just disorients you, I'm sure, beyond belief. Like, that's something we will never understand unless, like, you're actually, like, something like that has happened to you. Right. Like, and relationships, that's, I mean, that throws out your entire, like, how can you trust anyone? Yeah, and I'm not saying it's not true, but mm-hmm. keep in mind that these do come from David Koresh himself. Right. So this could be him trying to prop his own backstory up to be more tragic than it actually was and to justify the things that he does later in life. I don't know. I The only person that I could see that told that story was himself. Mm-hmm. So take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, I would say. When he was seeing Debbie and working as a carpenter around the age of 18, Vernon met another girl named Linda Campione, who was only 16 years old. He said that he had met her before and didn't give in to the temptation of lust with the beautiful young girl, but after a couple of meetings, he and Linda had sex in his car a couple of times. Oh. (laughs) Super romantic. The carpenter, Langwood. (laughs) Hey-oh. He moved away after the second time they got together to avoid the temptation, but he shortly after got a phone call from Linda and she told him that she was pregnant. Uh oh. <laughs> Alarm bells are ringing. <laughs> woo, 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 woo. I also love that he's just like, I don't want to tempt myself anymore. So he moved like from Texas to like New York. He was just like, I'm out of here. So we went to the most <laughs> debaucherous city yeah. of all I time. I don't remember if it was history. actually New York, but I'm pretty sure it was. But it's just like, that's a wild thing to do. Yeah. At first, Vernon tried to say that he was sterile and it couldn't be possible that the kid was his. How would he know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but after thinking and praying on it, he decided to return and take responsibility for his actions. Upon his move back, Linda told him that she had had an abortion before he returned, 
but she still did like him and want to be with him. So he moved in with Linda's family. Weird step to take. Without a ring on, that is something. And guess what happened? He got her pregnant again. Huh. Because he said that having unprotected sex was part of his religious beliefs and that he couldn't wear condoms. Like, religious fanatics are very funny. Yeah. (laughs) Because they always move the goalpost for themselves and then judge other people very heavily. Yep. And this is that to the utmost. <laughs> so, of course, Linda's father was pissed that he that Vernon had gotten his daughter pregnant a second time at the age of 16 and kicked him out of the house, and he never saw Linda again. After this event, Vernon said that he had a talk with God, and God told him that in his 19 years of life, Vernon hadn't dedicated himself to God. From the book Waco, quote, God said to me, Don't you know that for 19 years I've loved you, and for 19 years you've turned your back and rejected me? And all of a sudden, everything is like, bang! How I'd forgotten the purpose of my life, to be true to his word. It was a marvelous moment of self-affirmation. Best of all, God said he would give my first love back to me in time. But he never did. I lost contact with her and our child, my firstborn. I came to God because of her. End quote. Huh. So you think he pitched from that, he pitched like, oh, God is my first love type deal. No, I don't think so. Yeah. He was like, no, I actually do not have access to my uh, child. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I don't know where my kid is. Yeah. I don't know where my (laughs) son is. Got kicked out. You know, my religious beliefs got me in trouble, I guess. Yeah. My religious beliefs. And can you imagine pulling that line? On like a lady, <laughs> like you already, <laughs> you already police. got this this guy's daughter pregnant one time, yeah. and had she had to get an abortion, mm-hmm. and this is in Texas too, where it's like abortion has like not been a very good thing for the like right the most part, and now you got her pregnant again. How is this dad not to the classic like just shoot him or something? Honestly, chase him off the property. Like, get out of here! Don't don't get. <laughs> After his roller coaster teenage years, Vernon started to truly attend church. According to the elders of the church that he chose, Vernon Howell commanded attention and the church was happy to welcome the young man. The congregation members offered him jobs and he was receptive to the church's message. He said he was guilty over his sins with Linda and thus Vernon stopped playing music and engrossed himself in the scriptures instead. In a setting he once deemed too rigid, Vernon now became everyone's judge. He would critique the girls' outfits, calling them immodest, while at the same time flirting with the older female members. Why does that just make sense for whatever reason? Like he he does seem like a guy that would just like like oh grenadine. (laughs) (laughs) Grenadine. I I love your pearls today, like some some shit like that. The Southern Bell woman. Oh yeah. Then she's like, Oh my stars. Cause the Accounting from the Spectrum Magazine article that I read, it had like one of the elders of the church talking because this the article came out right after Waco happened, and he was like, "Yeah, he tried to get with my wife," <laughs> and he was just like, "We after that I was like, I'm done with you." Oh my god! <laughs> Sharon called this time in his life the last chance for someone to stop Vernon's transformation into David Koresh, but. Alas, it wasn't meant to be. 
He attended seminars at church that focused on the teachings of the book of Revelation and the Apocalypse. He quickly became obsessed with the story of the seven seals that the Bible speaks of in Revelation, but he claimed that the message was missing something. Kind of similar to what Victor, Victor Hotef said. He said, there's some secrets here that need to be revealed that aren't clear yet. In the religion where you practice the Bible is an infallible doc- document. Oh, that's actually missing a little. A little it's, it's missing a little spice. It's not wrong. It's just there's something not there. I just have some thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> what was missing, according to Vernon, was that the seventh seal was one that could only be opened by a new prophet. And who better to be that prophet than Vernon Howell himself? Huh. Interesting. It's weird how he fit right in. It's very convenient, you know? He's right there while the seal needs to be opened. (laughs) Yeah, he's... Do you see that? It's got my name on it. I have the key. (laughs) He tried to bring this message to the church, but was rejected and disfellowshipped. Following this rejection, Vernon had another revelation. Quote, My vision was limited, like I was seeing through a dark-tinted welder's mask. I saw a gigantic wall, like the front of a skyscraper, and on this wall was a huge inscription cut into the stonework. The Law. And there was an even bigger wall beyond that with another inscription. Prophecy. I saw God the Father with a book in one hand, his other hand was held out to me, and I took hold of it. End quote. At the time, he didn't know what this vision meant, but he was curious afterwards about why there weren't any more prophets. Speaking to his aunt about it, she told him that there was one, a woman named Lois Roden at a place called Mount Carmel. Mmm, it all comes together. Vernon eventually rolled his fancy yellow Buick up to Waco and the Branch Davidians on his own at the age of 22. There he met Lois Roden, who is now in her 60s, and introduced himself as a possible prophet of God. Can you imagine that? Rolling up to a, a group of religious fanatics in like this fancy car you got and saying, hey, I'm the new prophet. You know that prophet you... Sorry, let me do my southern twang. You know that prophet you've been looking for? That's me. That's me. <laughs> Tips Ple- his cap. Pleasure to meet you. I don't, have you ever seen the movie Devil All the Time? It's a Netflix movie. It's got uh, I've not. No. Okay, it's got Robert Pattinson and Tom Holland in it. But Robert Pattinson plays like the new preacher in town, and this just reminds me of his character from that, where he just shows up and he's just like, "Howdy, folks!" I love that. That's that's two British actors. Also. I know, and they both <laughs> but, have like super heavy Southern accents. Yep. Once he got to the Waco compound and the Branch Davidians community, he not only found a lover, but also a wife and a new community to welcome him in. But here's the thing. The wife and the lover were not the same people. (laughs) Huh. Interesting. Lois, being near the end of her life, was looking to appoint a successor. Originally, the plan was to have her son George take over, and that's what George was thinking as well. However, most of the Branch Davidians knew George simply as Poor George, the hulking man who suffered from twitches and impromptu bouts of anger. Thank goodness this... So, George Costanza, look at that. <laughs> this guy is huge, though. Like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he's a, like, he could eat George Costanza for breakfast. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and he's always got guns. Well, there you go. They didn't, the Branch Davidians didn't think that George was the man who was going to lead the group into the restoration of Israel. 
So when this young, handsome, well-spoken guy showed up, he quickly had groups of people gravitating towards him and his messages, with Lois Roden apparently liking Vernon as well. Because according to personal testimony, Vernon and Lois were lovers, as well as being the spiritual leaders of the group. Vernon himself said that he was hoping for a miracle that Lois would bear him a child, even though she was in her late 60s, like, I don't remember who, was it Elizabeth in the Bible that had a child in her 80s or 90s? Sure. I can actually look. I mean, yes, I think it was, but the expectation for this late 60-year-old lady. (laughs) You're putting a lot of pressure on her, like, have my baby. And also, this man in the past has said that he's sterile. Yeah. But also has already had two kids. Well, one kid and then... Yeah. It was yeah. it was not uh, Elizabeth, actually. It was Sarah that had a child in her 90s. And so he's like, you could do that too, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're close with God enough, right? Yeah. So while Vernon is pounding out this 60-year-old, George was quite upset... <laughs> <laughs> about Vernon Howells. I'm sorry, I did not expect that. We've said, episode 100, we've said a lot of things, but I did not expect to hear while he was pounding out the 60-year-old. <laughs> but George Roden was watching from the sidelines and was getting quite upset about Vernon Howell's presence. Not only was he vying for the group's leadership role, but he was also sleeping with his mother. Yeah, that's tough to get over. You can't that like that sucks. Yeah, and just in general that in any situation that sucks. Yeah. With tensions rising, Vernon realized that it would be better for him to leave with a small group of his followers and relocate for a time. But before he did, one of the Branch Davidians allowed the mid-20-year-old Vernon to marry his 14-year-old daughter. Perry Ew. Jones <laughs> Perry Jones presented his daughter Rachel to Vernon, and according to Texas law, it is legal for a 14-year-old to marry as long as the parents consent, making this Vernon's first and only legal wife that he will have. Uh, that's so gross. It is wild. 14. Yeah. Vernon took his followers and his new wife to a city called Palestine, which was about 100 miles away from Waco, and began his transition into a leader, because this was the first time that he was the undisputed top dog in a community. And that's he made it. I mean, in his eyes, he's really made it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like he was oh, an outcast, yeah. Till he was fourteen, mm-hmm. and less than ten years later, he's already leading a group. Right. He had a very unfortunate nickname, which I won't say. But like Sputnik, Sputnik. Yeah, that's <laughs> the one. Yeah, hey, hey, you don't say that. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, his this is probably an unbelievable turning point in his confidence, his charisma. Like, the way he's preaching, he's probably just putting out bangers every single Sunday. Well, that's the thing. Like, everybody that met him said he wasn't that charismatic. Like, he wasn't a superstar. He wasn't this, like, this gravity that pulled people to him. He was just kind of an everyman. And people Hmm. saw him and they're like, I learned a lot from him. Hmm. That's why they stayed. They're like, he taught me more about the Bible in a few hours than I had learned from six years of going to classes. Interesting. So that was the main reason why he had such dedicated followers. Mm -hmm. So the group, when they moved to Palestine, lived in buses and tents, and it was a very primitive settlement, to say the least. 
It would be a few years before Vernon would return to Mount Carmel, and when he did, it would be quite sensational in fashion. <laughs> Lois Roden died in 1986, but before she died, she appointed Vernon as her accessor and the group's new prophet. This, naturally, made her son George quite angry. He still sat on the Mount Carmel property legally, and he challenged Vernon to prove that he was the true prophet of God. So, I'm guessing you have a question, Evan. How does one prove that he's the true prophet of God? Are we talking, like, water into wine? Are we talking, you know, I have two fish, can you make it many fish? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So George decided that it would be a good idea to dig up the 20-year-old corpse of a woman named Anna Hughes, which was one of Lois's former followers, and then sent a message to Vernon. And if you can, he said, if you can bring this corpse back from the dead, then I will accept your claim as the next prophet of the Branch Davidians. <laughs> that is such a stupid fucking thing I've ever heard. Poor Ep- George. <laughs> episode 100, guys. Like We've talked about popes putting other popes that died on trial, asking a man to bring another lady back from the dead in 1960. Yeah. It's pretty bold. Yeah, so this, and everyone said that, like... Excuse me, 1980. At this point, George was kind of going crazy, uh, because he was pretty much on the compound by himself. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) this twitchy, furious gun-toting man digs up a corpse and says, revive her from the dead, and I'll respect you. In today's language, we call that a senator. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Vernon declined the offer and instead reported George to the sheriff. According to claims from Howell himself, he had photos of the coffin draped in an Israeli flag, but the officers said that they wanted photographic evidence of the bones. So in order to get these photos, Howell and a group of seven of his followers snuck into the Mount Carmel camp in November of 1987 to try and get pictures of the corpse. Armed with shotguns and rifles, the group couldn't find the coffin and were instead met by barking dogs and George Roden, who ran out firing at them with an Uzi. Oh my god, with an Uzi? <laughs> an Uzi. <laughs> Well, he had a very custom class, I guess, if we're talking Call of Duty terms. <laughs> Good fire rate. <laughs> yeah. Bzzz. Roden suffered light injuries, but the deputies showed up and arrested Howell and his followers. According to Gary J. Coker Jr., who defended Howell, Vernon had never been so surprised at this. He thought the deputies would arrest George Roden, but instead, he was the one getting pushed to the ground and being handcuffed. That lawyer's name literally translates to ye mother effing ha. I know, dude. That is Gary, Gary J. Coker Jr. He's either, he literally only had the choices of being a lawyer or being an oil tycoon. Yeah. <laughs> there was no in between. But that's a name on a billboard right there. Like, and with a phone number, and it's like, one call, that's all. One but call. it's Gary J. Coker Jr. So it's like, you got coke crimes? <laughs> Let me solve them. When you're in the slammer, come to Coker. <laughs> eh, that didn't... Yeah, yeah. We're, not good. We're not slogan, guys. <laughs> the timeline at this point is kind of unclear from what I could find, but at some point, Vernon had paid all of the unpaid property taxes on the Mount, Mount Carmel property with the help of his wealthier followers, and was given rightful ownership of the property. 
So perhaps he was right to be shocked if this happened, if that whole trans that whole transaction happened before the shootout. But regardless, the case went to trial. Coker Jr. stated that he made the choice to bring the casket that George had unearthed into the courtroom as evidence. In his words, quote, We relied pretty heavily on it, showing that this woman actually existed. And I even argued, judge, that she was the closest eyewitness to the whole event. Because she was in her casket, but she was only 20, 30 feet from all the shooting. End quote. <laughs> yeah, that quote is so Texas, it already has seceded from the Union. (laughs) (laughs) There's an audio clip, and maybe I'll just put the whole audio clip in right here so that you guys can listen to how preposterous it is, but is the most hilarious thing that I've listened to for this this whole topic was him talking about that. Yeah, the audio is very fun. It's hilarious. And so I noticed this large object, obviously a casket, uh, leaning upright in the shed. And I said, what is, is that the casket? Yes. Why, why is it there? Well, we moved it here after George and we closed it. And I said, do you think you'd get that casket up? Would y'all have any religious scruples about bringing that casket and we'll introduce the casket into evidence? Well, I researched it and I found there's nothing, I mean, people have introduced automobiles into evidence before. I mean, if it'll fit in the courtroom, you can introduce it. There's no prohibition against something that large being introduced so i just had when it was our turn we we relied it was a little bit of showmanship i suppose but we relied pretty heavily on uh showing that this woman actually existed and i even argued judge that this she was the closest non uh, eyewitness to the old because she was in a she was in her casket, but she was only 20 or 30 feet away from, from all the shooting. So, Coker Jr. and his team brought the casket in the front steps because it couldn't fit in the back and left it at the courtroom because they couldn't introduce it as evidence the first day. And the judge called Coker Jr. that night and yelled at him to take it away from the courthouse. And in response, the lawyer stated, quote, Well, it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> And the judge is like, yeah, but you brought it but here. You brought it, yeah, you touched it last. <laughs> but eventually, Coker Jr. did go and take it down and put it back in the van that they brought it in. That's very funny. George Roden eventually admitted to digging up the corpse, and Howell and his followers were acquitted of the charges against them. The Branch Davidians then backed a truck up to the courthouse and watched as the sheriff's department loaded it with the weapons that had been seized from the Mount Carmel shootout. According to former Branch Davidian Mark Buns, Mark Bundz, not Buns, <laughs> Buns, <laughs> quote, you don't have to stretch your imagination too far to appreciate how his followers must have interpreted that. He had won the verdict, the weapons, and the compound. In his mind, and in those of his people, he must have felt that he was guided by the hand of God, end quote. And of course, key in all of those statements is Fernan Howell. George Roden would later be arrested and convicted on an unrelated murder charge. Again, very angry, very twitchy. Yeah. Poor so, Georgie boy. Uh, but at the time that the article was written from Spectrum Magazine, he was in a mental hospital. So hopefully Ooh. he was getting some help. Yeah. 
But this court victory set Vernon Howell even further down his path to becoming David Koresh, giving him the land and the community that he would need to finally become the prophet he believed himself to be. And that is where we will pick back up with episode two of our series on Waco and the Branch Davidians. Groundwork is laid, and Vernon is now in complete control, and next week we will be getting into the beliefs of the group, Vernon's official transformation to David, along with his multiple wives, and the eventual involvement of the ATF and other law enforcement into the story, which led to the tragedy that occurred a little over half a decade later. Yeah, it, in a very United States fashion, we leave you after the first shootout <laughs> yeah. to yeah, talk I, about the other shootout. I texted Evan and I was like, yeah, I think we'll end it after the first shootout happens. And he texted me back. He's like, I don't think you could have said a more American thing. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These colors don't run. Oh. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, part one, this whole episode, I think you need, I think I said the same similar thing about Ruby Ridge, like you need this groundwork to understand why this all happened. Like, yep. There's so much motivation. There's so much as happened in Vernon and in the future, David's life that kind of led him to this point. And you get to really see what turned him into this and how we got to the, uh, eventually got to the unfortunate situation yep. down the road. And I didn't mention them at the beginning. I kind of mentioned them a little bit as we went. But our main source for this series is a book called Waco, A Survivor Story by a man named David Thibodeau. He is one of the survivors from the actual siege, one of the few. And it is a good book, but it is a little biased one way because he was a former member of the group. So some of his views on what David did in certain situations... I think personally are a little skewed towards being kind of relaxed, but it is a good book. It gives a lot of very good information and it kind of reads more as a narrative than uh, a recounting of just dates and times and everything. So in that way, it's good. But then I used Spectrum Magazine, an online article, a digitized version of an old article for most of the information that I got on Vernon himself and his childhood. And then I used a few other sources that I forgot to type out. But there, if you if you look up like David Koresh childhood and then Victor Hotep, Victor Hotef, there was an actual SDA website that kind of gave a good rundown on Victor Hotef's involvement. So and then Evan, I know you had a few. Yeah, I excuse me, I used WacoHistory.org, uh, Britannica.com, Christianity.com, and Adventist.org. So those are our sources, and that is our first part. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope we did a good job laying the basis for how we get to the eventual places we will get to, because as Evan said, this is all very important to understanding how we get to the eventual Waco compound siege. Mm -hmm, absolutely. But we got some exciting news, guys. Woot. So we... In celebration of making it to 100 episodes, we decided we are going to launch a Patreon. If you're unfamiliar with what Patreon is, it is basically a platform that creators, content creators can use for people to donate to what they do. You can, most people set up multiple tiers with like varying amounts of donations. But for now, we are just doing one tier. It's going to be $5 and you'll get early access to episodes. You'll get access to we're going to do monthly listener 
polls and you guys can choose a topic that we do every month. And then you'll get stickers and stuff. We got all this fun stuff planned. We got a lot of content for you, a lot of stuff to offer. And just very appreciative for everyone that's been on the ride. I mean, 100 episodes is insane. It's pretty cool. That is very cool. I'm yeah. very, I mean, that's, yeah, that's just a lot of time. And I've enjoyed every single second of it. I mean, it's just been such a cool thing to do. It's an awesome hobby. And we're just looking to do more stuff for you guys, you know? Yeah. And I mean, even if you just want to support us, I mean, this is a way for you guys to do it to show your appreciation. I mean, we'll we'll be happy with anything that you guys give. You don't mm-hmm. feel pressured or anything. But yes, if any of you guys do decide to donate, thank you in advance. We really appreciate the support. But we will be posting links to that when this episode drops, and you guys can follow that link, find all that information, and yeah, we'll go from there with everything with that. And also, I, you may have noticed that we did put an ad in this episode. And if you subscribe to the Patreon, you can get access to ad-free versions of the episodes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Evan, do you want to plug our social media so people can find that link when we post it? You can find all those links on Twitter at Gems of History. Po- Excuse me. Gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at ja- 100 episodes. You can find <laughs> Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at Wadevsky's. Then on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Gems of History Podcast. Yes. So thank you guys for coming along on this ride with us for 100 episodes. We are excited to keep going forward and providing you guys some more good content. And I know I mentioned at the beginning, like people have suggested doing like a Q&A for 100, episode 100. If that's something you guys would want us to do, let us know. Like we can start gathering some questions from you guys and do that sometime. So, but. That's all we got for part one. I think we'll have probably at least, well, we'll have at least two, maybe three parts for this series, Mm -hmm. depending on how much time it takes us to get through the story. But look forward to that for next week. Everyone out there, have a great week this week and stay polished.